Welcome, welcome to Live Courageously, and this is uh, Live Courageously podcast show 13 of 2023, and I'm your host, John Duffy, and this is the 29th uh, Live Courageous podcast show since I started the show a year ago. Live Courageously has been the conscious theme of my life for the last three years since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, and it's also been an unconscious theme for most of my life. If you haven't seen the previous 28 podcasts, with some of my amazing, courageous friends sharing their powerful stories of overcoming all odds, going on to live powerful lives and making a difference in the world. You can watch them on my John Duffy Live Courageously YouTube channel. And I have another, and it just keeps growing, 75 more friends planning to be guests on my future shows. I don't know where I'm going to get to do all this, but uh, it's a great problem to have. So please subscribe to my Live Courageously YouTube channel and keep coming back every week, Sunday at 2 p.m. So why live courageously? Because fear is just a reaction, but courage is a choice. And I suggest you consciously choose courage and faith over fear every time you experience fear to help you get through life and to deal with whatever life may throw at you in the future. And trust me, it will throw stuff at us that we don't like or want. So today, my guest is a very special, Dr. Trina Clayu. Dr. Trina is uh, given hours CEO, and during her first year, she led the board of directors and the staff to reinvigorate the organization and better reflect its mission, its expertise, and its vision for the future by developing a three-year strategic plan, the impact of which will be felt by the communities they serve as they continue to transform the landscape of mental health. Before joining Given Hour, Trina was chief operation officer for social impact nonprofit organizations addressing the educational, the social, emotional, and affordable housing disparities across low wealth communities. She also served as a director and an assistant dean for both the K to 12 and community college systems. As a military spouse, Trina served as the director of workforce and economic development for a county of governments charged with multi-state coordination of base realignment and closure events and as CEO of a national military spouse and veteran workforce development network, and as a sexual assault response coordinator in support of the Army Family Readiness System. Trina uh, earned a doctorate in leadership studies from Gonzaga University, along with certificate in change management, lean process improvement, and pro program evaluation. Her master's degree in public administration is from Portland State University, and she has been recognized by the National Association of Development Boards for Innovation and received the Salem Award for Leadership Excellence from Spokane Community College and the Nonprofit of the Year Award from the Chase Foundation. Additionally, Trina has presented at conferences related to human-centered design, trauma-informed practices, and a replication model serving vulnerable populations. In her downtime, Wait, what downtime? Um, Trina enjoys athletic activities and completed a full Ironman, two half Ironmans, and hundreds of running events. She remains active with her husband and retired veteran of 26 years and two children. Wow. Greetings and welcome to Dr. Trina. How are you doing? Hi, I am doing great. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Wow, just reading that, I feel like such a slacker. Really? And I just think, oh, my God, this sounds like so governmental. It sounds not really, uh, really uh, exciting. Or, yeah, but there's a lot there. Well, there is all that. But at the same time, when we get into it and what you do and what your organization in particular, Given Hour, does, it's going to get off of the governmental and into really the practical and the service that's being provided, which I think is pretty amazing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you just... You know, we're going to get into some of all those things that you've just we just talked about. But wow, I'm still I'm just like feeling like that's an amazing amount of stuff you've accomplished. So uh, congrats to you for doing all that. Thank you. Um, now, I, I always start off the show with two questions. And, and you know, most of the people, uh, well, up until now, with the exception of one guest, has been people I've met in person in real life, not just, you know, through the show or through social media. So my first question is, how did we meet? And, you know, your, your take on it, my take, and we'll go into that and then we'll go to the second one. Oh, my gosh. We, we, we met pretty recently. So we met officially in January um, and we were both at Eric Christensen, the, the um, creator of Unmasking Hope. We were at his premiere in L.A. 
And I had invited um, Jeff Daly, who I had only met through his show. So I had never met him in person, but he happened to be nearby. And we were trying to link up ahead of this just to have coffee or something. Eventually, I was like, well, why don't you just come to the premiere? And then, of course, you know, he's got a giant personality. So he shows up in all of his Jeffness. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> he sees, yes. He sees you. And it was just, I mean, it was so clear that you two have a history there and a lot of love for each other. But all of a sudden, everything else just dissolved. And I was like, this is the spot I want to be is between the two of you having these conversations and watching you two really riff off each other, you know, so much like energy, you know, ribbing each other about stuff. But there was so much love. And then we'll watch both of you just kind of work so many people there in how you engage with folks. And it really meant a lot. There's a number of veterans who were there unrelated to both of you or maybe knew you in, in some different capacities, but really sought both of you out in different ways to feel uh, a connection. And, and it was just amazing how much you saw them and spent time and were really intentional. And so right then, you know, when you meet people and you're just like, somebody's got the right energy for your life and, and both of you were that person for me. Well, you know, I just echo that. It was like, you know, it, it was funny how it all kind of connected. And I, you know, I always kind of say it's obviously somebody's had a bigger plan for this than me, but um, and, and who that may be is God. But, you know, we got there and it was like, I didn't, I, I came to support Eric, who yeah. I'd seen one of his previous movies and he did not know that I was coming. I was, so, you know, I surprised him, which was very cool. And then I come in, I didn't know Jeff was going to be there and he's the commander of the American Legion. Yeah. And like you said, he had you on, his podcast show, American Legion podcast show. And then we just, you, you know, he introduced me to you and then we just started having fun together, the three of us. Right. And it was, it was such a, and then he started giving me a hard time that I haven't had him on my podcast show. So, you know, so that started us. And then of course I have now had him on the podcast show, but then you also having met you and what you do and you got up and spoke at the program on unmasking hope and your organization was a big part of, supporting uh, Eric with his uh, uh, dealing with trauma documentary that he made is on PBS. So I got a chance to get to know a little bit about you by watching you in action and what your organization does. So I was like, okay, I got to have her on my show. And of course, they, you know, that led to you coming and, and being here. Um, and then it's kind of funny because the other week I just interviewed a a uh, veteran friend of mine who is also a member of Post 43 in Hollywood, uh, Nicholas Comier III, and he's an Air Force vet, and he just ran his fourth marathon. Uh, so it's like you running Ironmans, he's running marathons. I'm, you know, I'm more than a slacker now, you know. But um, so, and then he told me that he had gotten service because he was homeless for a while, and he was dealing with some uh, trauma issues, and he got service uh, therapy service from Given Hour, and so that was, you know, so all it just all circle around, you know out of nowhere, we all connected and we all connected through this. So I, I'm honored and, and glad to have you on the show. Um, the second question I always ask, and I think you're an example of it in many levels in service particularly, but what does live courageously mean to you since that's the theme of the show? Yeah, absolutely. I, well, I mean, obviously you've curated this, you know, so much because I think that you, you really nailed it is, is really addressing and leaning into fear and things that we put in our own way um, and really choosing something different. And so I think choosing the other side of that and how each of us navigates getting on the other side of fear, because that's really, you know, and a, a friend of mine had always said this, so that's where abundance is, right? And so when you stay on this side of fear, you're holding your life small and you're holding it tight and you hold it very safely, uh, but you're missing out on just everything that's big and exciting and challenging that's on the other side of it. And so um, I think that, you know, in different ways, we're all addressing our fears um, in, in trying to figure out how to do it in a way that feel, that does feel authentic. And I know that's such an overused word now, but when you're, when you're, when it's your journey, no one else can tell you how to do it. No one else can tell you how to get on the other side. You can hear and get ideas and advice, but you're going to be, have to be the one who puts the action behind it. Uh, 100%. Um, I'm going to put something up from a good friend of ours, a little uh, Jeff Daly. Oh, uh, Lord, Jeff's here. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Jeff's in the house. Uh -oh. <laughs> we we, we got to be careful now. 
Um, <laughs> I'm so glad that he doesn't have a, you don't have a call-in function, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, we, we may have to do a show with all three of us. I, I think that's coming down the road. But but um, just to kind of your journey, I mean, you've done, like I said, so many amazing things. And you, you started out, you know, you have a, 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 so much education behind you. And then you went into the nonprofit world. What Tell us a little bit about that journey right. uh, as to becoming Dr. Trina and what took you into that path and why. And then, you know, share that with us and a little bit of the personal before we get into some yeah. of what you do. Yeah. And I wish I had like this really interesting, like, oh, everything was just so laid out. And then I just followed this path. But <laughs> I will say generally, even in the face of like having an easy path and a hard path, for some reason, I will always seem to choose the hardest path. I'm not quite sure why, uh, you know, I'm sure I'll be working that out for, you know, my, for this next chapter of my life. But I, um, I, you know, kind of my early on, I, I grew up in northern Idaho, so don't know where that is. That's okay, but it's cold there. It's beautiful. It's outdoors, um, but it's, it's a little isolated, um, to say the least. And um, when I was in high school, um, for just kind of a variety of reasons, I decided to move out on my own. Um, and finish school, which um, in retrospect, probably wasn't even the path that I was, that you would have been on, you know, just kind of leaving school and uh, not leaving school, I'm sorry, but moving out. And I was working full time and, and finishing high school. And I started taking some college classes and really just, I didn't exactly know what I was doing, um, which I think is kind of prevalent in many things that I do. I'm not exactly sure what's happening. Um, I eventually uh, applied to um, college. I was still, I waited for about a year and a half before I went to college. I do believe I went and took, and took my SATs um, hungover, which is probably indicative <laughs> also of like my age and that I, I wasn't really thoughtful about this. I was just trying to go to that, you know, the next kind of reasonable step. And so, um, you know, I've always worked full time and, and each time I've gone back for my education, it's always been full time. Um, and I just tend to layer a lot of things on there, which, um, you know, uh, hasn't uh, always uh, created enough space for me to do a whole bunch of things really well. But that's really kind of the path that I took. And um, early on in my career, I was doing internship as a um, guardian ad litem, which is like going to court for children who had been abused and mm. being their advocate. And I was like, you know, this is actually pretty cool. I really like the, you know, I'd interview people and you make recommendations. And I was like, oh, this is something I would want to do. And somehow I ended up going from that to uh, graduating college and went right into working at the parole commission in, in Idaho um, mm -hmm. for the commission of pardons and parole. So I interviewed inmates um, and, and persons who were incarcerated and did backgrounds and made recommendations. And I did that for about three years. And it was, I will say it was fun. It was kind of non-conventional. Um, it was different. Um, it was a lot. And I think at some point I was like, you know, I need, I, I need to go to the next. And so I, um, headed back to school. That seemed to be my default. Uh, again, didn't know what I was doing. Neither of my parents went to college. So, you know, it was like really trying to, um, navigate, uh, a system that I really just didn't know that much about. So someone had told me about, Public, uh, public administration. I swear to God, even at the time I signed up, I didn't know what it was. <laughs> so I was like, sounds like a great degree. So I was probably even three fourths through my degree. And I'm still like trying to figure out exactly what this is. But it's basically being like a CEO of government. Um, and so uh, I, you know, I, I um, was doing that. I actually went and worked at the uh, parole commission or not the parole commission, the um, liquor control commission. So I was an undercover liquor officer in the state of Oregon. Wow. I know I was one of four. You kind of think like all, like I had this impression of like all undercover liquor folks were, um, you know, like fifties, divorcing <laughs> times, you know, and there was the four of us, it was three women and a, and a gentleman out of Orange County, California, who used to be a um, police officer. And that's what we did. So at nighttime, I did undercover liquor. Daytime, I was in college. Um, and then I went back to corrections, which is crazy, as an internal affairs investigator. And I well, did stop there for a second, and we're going to come back to internal. Okay. Affairs. Yeah. Uh, that's just another fascinating thing about you, obviously. So doing undercover liquor, what does that mean? What do you do? And I, yeah. I, I've never heard of it in that sense. So are I, you I'm serious? Oh my gosh! Oh, thanks for sure. That would be a whole thing in California. 
Um, so yeah, so you work for the state and so the right. state actually, um, has an enforcement side. And so you spend a lot of time, so you go to bars and restaurants, which are all regulated by, um, the state liquor commission right. and you do, uh, you know, some people in the office, their job was to be like out there and be educators and, you know, help people with like over service and neighborhood livability. And, um, we monitored like, uh, minor entertainers and, adult entertainers for like escorting on the side, which is illegal and um, drug activity and gang violence and neighborhood livability. So those are all enforceable parts of this. And so that's what we did. So we did, you know, at like spring break, I'm on the coast. You'd spend the coast doing spring break, which is a lot of like underage drinking um, during certain seasons. Um, you might be uh, like going to really rural areas where a lot of like hunters, you know, were out and there would be over service or you go to some places that were known to be like the, wasn't the Hell's Angels. It was like another, it's been a little, it's been a minute, but another um, kind of motorcycle. Gang. <laughs> I was going to think of a better word, but yes, gang. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so had really kind of sketchy, instances um with um you know identifying like the you know some of the drugs and things like that and so you wow. do that and then yeah then you make yourself and then you go on to the next one that you just was mentioned yeah. before i uh, uh no, took you back okay. to that so then you went into uh, the criminal justice system doing what specifically yeah. internal affairs um for the state of oregon also and in ohio i did it again i did it twice wow um and so that was really about um staff um, who were doing illegal things, uh, either administrative or criminal in, in the system. So a lot of it had to do with um, abuse of inmates, mm. uh, could be um, running like tobacco or drug um, contraband. Um, in, into the prison systems illegally. The prison systems, uh -huh. the, but it always has to do inside outside. So everything right. kind of runs outside as well, because you need a lot of family members and friends to run this stuff inside. Sure. So we did that. And oh my God, I went out on bus with, you know, getting the state police to pick up my case and going out and raiding homes and doing all the stuff. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm in my thirties by now. I need to I need to clean it up. I need to, <laughs> I need to do something that's, you know, but, but, you know, uh, uh, obviously everybody goes on a different journey. Some people start out life and they know exactly what they want to do and they go on that path and it, it works out perfect. Right. Uh, but most of us don't get to do that usually. And we kind of got to find ourselves and refine ourselves and refine ourselves. And sounds like you did that. But, it, you know, it, it just kind of sounds to me listening to you, you know, it takes a, a form of courage to be able to recreate yourself to be able to, you know, go down a path, do what you did and then find yourself and, and then move on and then kind of recreate yourself again. You know, I mean, that's a form of, of not staying in a comfort zone, but keep moving forward towards something, even if you don't know what that something is, but you're moving forward, you're taking steps, you're taking action. And, and in that form, it is courageous. So keep going with that. But I, I, that's, I just, you know, in hearing it, I, I hear that in you. Oh, I appreciate that because yeah, it, it it's, I think it's, you know, when you don't set out a path that you're just following, trying to go linear. And I think you're right. Very few people have a linear path. I, I don't think I could see what the next, I just know there's a next every time. So right. I do something and then I'm like, oh, there's something, there's gotta be something different or something more to this. And so, uh, you know, a lot of my work, even just past that had to do with working um, with individuals who are generally at the margins for whatever reason. So I've, I've done workforce development, which was working at the colleges, which was a blast, but it wasn't the traditional student that comes in that's, you know, working on a two-year degree to transfer. It was individuals are coming in, maybe this, you know, education hadn't worked out for them, um, working at career and technical programs, so getting people into kind of quicker pro or quicker programs that'll get them out um, into a livable wage job. And so it wasn't just, um, and a lot of times those were adults, they've already had some life behind them. So it wasn't just looking at traditional college students. And I absolutely, I mean, I loved it. That um, works its way into a job that I had um, also in, in Spokane when I was on the West Coast. And uh, I ran an education and workforce center for young adults, so 16 to 24. And these are push out, fade out, kick out uh, young adults. And when I got there, we had like 22. I think that was our top enrollment. And when I left four years later, we had over 700. Wow. And it was word of mouth. And it was an education program. It was to get your GED. But we were also did everything else. 
and um oh my god it was on fire like sometimes it was literally literally on fire (laughs) and um we had great work with like the police and with the schools and with the community and with business and it was hard uh, at times to keep kind of keep it contained um there was a lot of gang activity and a lot of you know violence that our young people went through i think since i've left there's like 13 14 young people who passed on passed away um, wow. for various things. And so, you know, it's really, it was really serious. And when you had a good group of, uh, staff, you had a great thing and, and we really just changed it. We tried to do it really different and be really young people led. And we, we always had like two rules. When I got there, we had like 75 rules. It was awful. And when, when, uh, we worked with the young people and the two rules ended up being, don't be a jackass and don't smoke weed here because we had funders come. And sometimes people would have like half of the role for the day. Somebody couldn't, you know, other people can't do either of them. You know, <laughs> we never suspended. We were trying not to kick, you know, young people out. It was always just like, okay, so you just got in a fight in the parking lot. Can you go to math class? Like, let's just get back into it and kind of do the thing. And it was, I really felt like it was successful. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 again, as you recreate and redefine what does success mean? And I would really say that, Every day, no matter kind of what a crap show it felt like the day might have been, it, for most of our young people, I would say it was a, it was a great day for them. And we really tried to make it just feel like they were the most important person who walked in the door. And so it was, I always said it was like the Nordstrom's experience of workforce development, but a lot of people weren't around during Nordstrom's when it realized what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I identify with two things. One, with you, because obviously... You know, like you're talking like finding your path. I mean, I, I say I've, I'm on my seventh lifetime and I've had six others. And I think I have I'm hoping to get two more because I want to have as much as a cat. But, you know, <laughs> I, I've kind of gone through, you know, all kinds of things because I never knew what I, I was. You know, when I first, you know, I was a high school dropout at 15. My goal was to survive. That was my goal, survival. And then from, from survival, it went further and further and I kept moving forward. But so I, re- you know, related to that. And then at one point when I moved to California in the 90s, you know, I worked as a counselor with runaway kids in Hollywood for two years in a program. And I also worked as an overnight counselor with mentally ill patients. So I kind of had a lot of uh, and the counseling with the kids was was, was uh, awesome. And, you know, being able to take my growing up in a poor neighborhood, a ghetto, being able to take that and just kind of inspire others kind of became a part of my life. And I took it into what I do today and speaking and film and all that. But I had the, you know, the counseling part of it, too. And, you know, being doing service is such a great thing. And that's why your organization and we'll talk about all the layers of what Given Hour does service wise and then how people can get involved. But, you know, I, I, it's just so important for people to realize no matter what amount of service you can do, even if it's a little bit, you know, it's a blessing to yourself as well as others. You know, you get as so much out of it. So if you can find a way to do it and your organization is one fantastic way for people to get involved and we'll get into that. But, you know, so you'll keep going with your journey because there's so much there. And then we're going to pivot in a few minutes to give an hour so we can spend Absolutely. some time. Yeah. And I, I, I so agree with what you're saying, because I think you don't really know yourself and, and what you're capable of until you really put yourself in those challenging situations. And especially when you're being of service to, to someone who um, you're not trying to change them, you're not trying to push things on them, you're really... And I truly believe in the the idea of like meeting people where they're at. And I've worked in a lot of organizations where people say that, and then they give you like 500 rules that people have to do in order for them to work with them where they're at. And so I really was inspired by the people around me who I think pushed against some of those um, normatives. And then even just moving into to the role that I have now at Given Hour, um, I really, I want to be that person who says yes more than I say no. Because that the, really the answers to the work that we do and the things that people need and the way in which they need it won't come from me. They'll come from people who are close to the work and close to the day to day. And I think that that's where so much of the magic just in any job that I've had is when you really listen to people um, and, and let their ideas spark and like give them fuel so they can, they can see their, their ideas come to life. It, it's only a better service to the people that you are um, you are there to to give back to, and so I think that all of those kind of different pieces have you know, and a lot of those were in fairly toxic work environments, 
um, just kind of by the nature of the work. And then also just some really, you know, crazy leadership and um, people who I, I really think probably were good intentioned, but it had gotten so out of control. And so for me, it was, it was, it became my goal that I just, I wanted to be CEO period of anything that was in service. And then when given hour came about, it just had like all the markings, like everything was there. Well, that's very cool. I mean, and I like what you said earlier about just those two rules that you have with the kids. Don't, you know, simplify it and make that's it. Don't point. be a jackass being one of them. Cause you know, it, 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 it's real at the same time as that authentic thing of, uh, you know, when I was a counselor, we had an experience, I had an experience. I had just started there and I luckily had some skill and we were giving out free sandwiches and uh, I was, you know, sitting watching and uh, a mentally ill man came in and he started screaming and cursing at the, the, the staff and the staff was intimidated and they gave him, you know, a, a little bit more than he asked for even. And then he left and I said, why'd you do that? And then they said, well, why, what, what can we do? I said, well, let me handle it tomorrow if he comes in. And so he came in the next day and he started screaming and cursing at me. And so I stood up and I just started screaming and cursing back at him in the same exact way. And his eyes got wide and he looked at me and I said, okay, now I got a question for you. Do you want to scream and curse at me? Because I can scream and curse at you and I could kick you out. Or do you really just want a sandwich? Because if you want a sandwich, the easy thing is just to say, hey, could I please have a sandwich? And I said, if you say that, maybe I'll give you two. But you got a choice. You can go back to screaming and cursing at me or you can ask me in a nice way. And he looked at me and he was like, sir, could I please have a sandwich? I said, wow, isn't that easy? So what are you going to do tomorrow? He said, sir, could I please have a sandwich? I said, see, it makes life a lot easier. I said, thanks a lot. Here's two sandwiches. And he leaves. And they're like, how did you do that? I said, well, he's mentally ill. He got issues, but he wants to survive. And if you let him survive by doing it th that way, he's going to do that. And if you give him a, a better alternative... Uh, he'll take that better alternative because at the end of the day, what does he really want? He wants that sandwich. He doesn't want to scream and curse at me. That's not why he came in, right. you know? So, you know, treating people with that kind of meeting them where they are, understanding who they are and understand what their need is. Sometimes it takes a little of that, you know, uh, awareness. And I think you, you, you know, you talked a lot, you know, about that going through the different programs that you worked in, you know, being able to be there for the kids. It's so amazing because, I mean, you kept it intact, too, that you kept someone's dignity intact. You know, you're not trying to take from them and make this about you kind of overtaking or, you know, like a power play for somebody who, who's not even in the power position. And exactly. so to have that much self-awareness, though, because I do know, you know, those can be pretty emotionally charging moments. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that you, you know, you stepped into it with the idea of like really seeing that person person as a human who has a need is very different than coming out of either with a savior complex or with you're going to um, just put them back in their place because they're, you know, they're yelling. So I think it takes a ton of mental fortitude and, and emotional maturity to pick dignity first before you engage. So I'm, I commend that. That's an amazing story. Well, you know, uh, thank you. And, and, and the people like yourself who are in the uh, arena, um, you know, who do it that way, you're able to uh, affect people and affect change. I mean, I had a, uh, a police officer on my show a couple, maybe a month or two ago, who works in Skid Row in LA, and he's been a police officer there for 25 years. And, and he's just such an amazing, powerful uh, human, because he, he does exactly what you just said. He treats people with that, he treats them with respect, and he changes their lives, because he does what he has to do. If he has to arrest them, he arrests them but he doesn't take away their dignity or treat them with disrespect. He does his job and he tries to inspire them to change, to find programs, to get into things that change their life for the better. So when you come across somebody like that, it always resonates with me because I think those are the people that we need to share their stories more like yours, um, because that's what the world needs more of because um, people need help. So um, yeah, definitely. I can't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Great so, story. so let me uh, let me take. Uh, we're gonna pivot in. I, you know, I want to make sure we get into all the things that Given Hour is doing, has done, is continue to do, and how people can get involved in it. So let me just take a moment and put up a quick one minute video from you, and then okay. you can take it from there and take us through this conversation about all the things that the, you, you've done and been doing. And I'll ask some questions about that. So let me just grab this and put this video up. Um, 
Given Hour is a national nonprofit that provides access to mental health care across the nation. Fear, shock, disbelief. I don't know how I can go on. These are the messages of hopelessness that Given Hour hears from our service members and families across our nation. Through a national network of volunteer licensed mental health professionals, Given Hour offers mental health care, peer support, and education resources to active duty, National Guard and Reserve, veterans, and their loved ones. In the U.S., there is only one mental health provider for every 95 people who live with mental illness. Given Hour intends to address this issue by growing its network of mental health providers to 50,000 strong. Your combined federal campaign donations will help Given Hour to grow its provider network and expand our services to include peer support programs, training, and workshops that can help bridge the gap in mental health support. All of our service members gave some, some gave all, making the ultimate sacrifice for our country. Now it's our turn to take care of them. Let's give back together. Thank you. All right. Whoops. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Yeah, and and, and I know from having read what you sent me, um, that that's one part of giving hour, obviously, with the veterans and veteran services and their families, but it's also beyond that. So why don't you take the uh, time to share what is given hour so the audience can hear what that is, and then I'll start asking you some questions about that. Sure. So we, we are a national mental health organization. Um, we have been, uh, we were founded in 2005 in direct result to 9-11, and our founder had just this incredible vision of knowing that in 2005, nobody, especially in the military kind of area, weren't talking about mental health. Um, and in fact, it could be really um, threatening to your career if you were talking about mental health. And so um, it was really founded on bringing together a national network of licensed mental health providers who would give an hour, so donate an hour of their time to a service member, a veteran, um, or their loved one. And even in 2005, it was unlimited. It was um, without barriers. It was uh, definitely at that time um, a lot of... Uh, confidentiality. I mean, obviously confidentiality always, but this was really about having, being able to have a separation between their military and um, status and getting mental health care. It's certainly um, over time, you know, obviously that conversation has changed quite a bit, but we're still addressing the issue of, of stigma and mental health um, in service area and all areas. Um, in 2015, uh, we did that for, you know, a good 10 years. And in 2015, um, we launched the, the campaign to change direction, which was really an international, but definitely a national campaign to really address stigma and the stigma with mental health. And it was a pivot point for us as well um, to begin to talk about what does this mean for me making sure that anyone can get access to mental health care. And as you heard the statistic on there, it's 52 0.9 million, which I think is incredibly conservative, um, individuals, adults with a mental health condition, and there's 569,000 mental health therapists. So you have um, a, just a dearth that cannot be closed by having just more therapists. There's just not enough. And not everyone needs a therapist, but all of us have a part to play in educating ourselves about mental health and what mental health is and what emotional wellness is and what good um, emotional practices are and how to really listen and respond to other people. And at the end of the day, so much of mental health is about human connection. And so while we have a services side to our house, we also have an education and support side, which is really around educating individuals and communities, but also building peer support networks where people can use the power of their story and their experience to share and listen to others. Um, and there's such a healing energy that goes with that. And then that allows more individuals access to a mental health provider for those who actually need individual counseling. And so that's been our my gosh, that's been our work. Our, I've been there for two years now. And so we're working, as you had mentioned before, the strategic plan, but it was really looking at human-made trauma and where can given hour be part of the solution for human-made trauma. So that can be military service, like war. 
It can be mass violence. We've been working in several um, communities been harmed by uh, mass shootings. Uh, interpersonal violence. So that can be people who've been affected in the justice system. It can be individuals. We are even working with a, a corporation right now to help with cybercrime and romance scams and sextortion and individuals who've been harmed um, in those uh, types of crimes and putting support groups together for people with other lived experience to be able to help them and then training licensed providers to walk alongside the journey with them. Um, and, um, in, you know, of course, the opioid epidemic in California, we have a program there in Southern California really addressing that. And we're trying to look at where do we take that next? Like, where is it a good place for us to expand some of that work? So it, it's kind of whatever you need it to be if you come to us because it's customized. And so we're not trying to pull some off the shelf product and say, this is your mental health journey, go take it. It's really about listening to, uh, to people um, and spending time with them before we try to offer them uh, a um, comprehensive way in which they can aid in their own healing. Well, you, you clearly, as you lay out, the organization has uh, expanded, grown, uh, taken on a new mission and, and, and taken on other issues besides the military and veterans. And, and like you said, uh, people who have experienced trauma, all the different layers of what you did. That's how we met because you were uh, supporting this movie, Unmasking Hope, which is story and it's on PBS, Eric Christensen. And that's about people who've experienced different forms of trauma from 9-11 to the borderline um, mass shootings to the Las Vegas mass shootings and people who've been sexually abused and all those issues kind of come together in that documentary and you supported that your organization given hour, but you do that in, in other capacities as well. So now, like you said, with the, you, you've taken on all these new things. What is, in your opinion now, you've been here with two years and you've been in, I, I would think personally, two of the hardest years in the sense, mm -hmm. or because the pandemic and the lockdowns and the lack of social connection seems to have uh, uh, created more mental illness in the population because as people gotten more isolated, whatever problems they may have had before have now kind of intensified, unfortunately. So people tend to need more help now, maybe even then two years ago or three years ago, it's, you know, on, on so many levels. So what's your experience with that? How do you see the, the landscape today and mental health in general and then what you're doing uh, to uh, uh, address it? Yeah. Um Oh, boy, it's it's layered, isn't it? Um, it is. I, I think we've noticed um, a, kind of a combination between uh, more people coming and less people coming in some ways, mm. because uh, I think for some stigma has been addressed in, in how they were experiencing mental health, let's say pre-pandemic. And then um, certainly there's just been a lot more conversation and a lot more um openness to have those conversations. And then I do think there's segments of, of the society that for a variety of reasons, there is additional um, uh, stigma associated with. And we know like our soft community or special forces community sometimes tends to be heightened levels of stigma that go with that. Uh, certain cultures, there's heightened stigma. We've been working with um, individuals who are military and, and veterans who are working with Afghan resettlers. And we know that that's been layered and we've been helping in, in providing really customized mental health support for the helpers. And they're dealing with layers of stigma for individuals that they're serving who are coming from Afghanistan who helped us during the war that um, is, is really cultural and very in, uh, gendered. And I mean, it's it, there's language, there's um, and there's not really a mental health system the way that uh, we know in the United States. Um, so you don't have a, a clean crosswalk there. So I think that's part of like why we spend so much time trying to get in with the people that we're serving to really understand what your wants and needs are. So then we can go back and tailor that. So everything feels like it lands rather than you know, 60% of it was useful, but 40% wasn't. We, we're not looking for that as as good uh, a good response to mental health care. I think the other is um, children, is that while we don't, um, we are tend to be mostly an adult, we're, many of our things are gearing towards helping adults help their children um, because there's just not enough child therapists out there um, to get care. I mean, you could be waiting 
I mean, and I have seen waiting lists that are more than a year. This is with insurance. And, and the other kind of part of it too is access to care. Oh my God, I told you it was so layered. It's just access to care is that even with great insurance, you may not be able to get into a therapist. And um, the other part is that there's a whole segment of the population that would benefit that maybe can't access care because they don't have either insurance or the network or the money for the co-pays. So, so much of what we're, we've been looking at is accessibility and equity in care. And so part of that is you're having to take care of therapists and help train them to work with individuals that have a human-made trauma that they may not be, have had experience with in their training and their education. And then on the other side of that is how do we really leverage the power of people in healing and peer support by bringing people together with shared experiences and help them help heal each other. And that the unmasking hope that you mentioned, um, you know, you saw Molly in there and Molly's an employee at Given Hour and she was involved in two mass shootings within not even 14 months of each other. She was in the Vegas uh, Route 91 festival. And then 13 months later, she was in the borderline uh, bar uh, uh, shooting that was on college night. And I think that having someone like her who has taken this experience, this very traumatic experience and channeled it into helping other people with that experience is something that a person who's been involved in a mass shooting is not going to get in a lot of places. And to have her be able to bring these network of individuals together from shootings from before to ones that have been, that were more recently involved and be able to be really genuine and be able to talk about how it helped her. Um, it is an incredible healing way and has so much legitimacy to it that this works and this can work for, for people and that you don't have to suffer quietly alone. Like there are other options and, and they're not options you have to pay for because of how we operate with writing grants and contracts and donations and things like that, we can offer these services without another burden for a family that's already taken a lot of burdens. And that's just one example. Well, you know, I, I, watching as powerful as the movie Unmasking Hope was, and it was very powerful uh, on, on so many levels, um, but was even more powerful for me, for me and, and maybe for other people in the audience was having the Q&A after the movie and listening to people like Molly and listening to people share of that journey from trauma through recovery, through continuing to recover and building that the resilience to get through. And, and each one of them had unique stories with unique uh, forms of trauma that was caused by different types of situations. But all of them, uh, you, it, it was just so powerful to hear it in person. And, and I think, you know, it just lets people know that, you know, it, it gives people hope. I mean, I think that's one of the things that came out of it. And I think, you know, uh, you hear it and you realize that people need, uh, uh, especially people who've been through trauma, need a message of hope. They need something that can give them that strength. And that's what you're doing with, with, with that particular uh, partnership but also with, um, with the other partnerships that, that are given hours doing as well. Um, I'm gonna just put up uh, uh, one, uh, Jeff's comment here. Uh, he said, uh, Molly and her story touched my soul. Uh, what resilience she has and the given hour services are greatly enhanced by that perspective. Powerful is exactly correct. Thank you, Jeff, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think that you really felt that each of those individuals were accessible to someone else. And, and I watched it in the room. There were so many people who um, the, the stories that were told really sparked their ability to say, oh, by the way, I had been sexually assaulted or I had had this experience. And I know after the, after the, um, the premiere and even after the Q&A, people were still coming up and offering a connection to that. And that's why you know, stories and people being able to share their stories and people feeling heard in a support way is so therapeutic um, because so often you do feel alone. You feel sure. like you're the only one and the feelings that you're feeling aren't natural or normal. And then when you hear from someone else who's like, oh my God, this is how I experienced it. All of a sudden you're like, oh geez, I didn't know that that would happen to someone else. And the California one was so 
different too, because it was place-based in, you know, the incident was in Vegas, but so many people affected lived in California. So they were really far removed from traditional services and supports. Ah, right. Um, and so that, that's again, with some of those layers of complexity that, that goes with it. But what I really love about this is coming with like curiosity, coming with um, no, not with the answers. Like we we have the experts, we've got therapists and they are experts and they are amazing, but we're not coming with the answer. We're coming with the questions and we're coming with listening and then asking like, is this, is this what you want and need? Is this how, and then really checking with people as we're doing it. Um, and I think having that combination is what um, for, for folks like Molly, as an example, it, it worked because she had a big voice in her own recovery um, and her healing and still does. No, absolutely. And, and, you know, just want to agree and echo, you know, uh, listening to people and really listening to them is so powerful um, because and not always feeling like, well, you know, here's the answer. Let me tell you what the answer is, because that's not what in general, in life, people need that. But, you know, after trauma is even less so that you need somebody who knows everything to tell you the answer, but you need to go through the process and you need people to listen to you and understand you and what you're feeling uniquely because it's a unique experience you're having. And, and, you know, if you can build that rapport and that understanding, then you're going to be able to build a relationship that's going to help that person go through that journey together. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I say 100% agree. Just some... Um, volunteer opportunities and we'll come back maybe depending on time a little bit more, but I want to make sure we get this in. I know there's, I saw three levels of, of ways people can volunteer, both mental health professionals, their ability to volunteer, corporate advocates and people with corporations in partnership with um, Given Hour, and then what you call wellness ambassadors. Um, or And then I think there may even be another one just called ambassadors. Right. But um, if you could just take people through that, how are they going to volunteer at the end? I'll put up the contact information. But if you can explain how, depending on who people are, if they're therapists or if they've got a corporation or if they got an organization like the American Legion to connect with you, what are the ways that everybody can connect with Give an Hour and be part of this, even down to the level of an individual given an hour? Um, absolutely. So providers is one. So we do have a goal of, of growing our provider network to 50,000, um, which is 10%. So I, I mentioned before, 569,000 um, therapists. So we're really looking at holding 10% of that market in, in being accessible to individuals who need individual therapy. Those tend to be our military members, um, veterans, and loved ones. Um we, and then we also have some, you know, kind of one-offs where somebody might be involved in another kind of incident where we would lean into that network. But in turn, we give back to those providers. Um, last year, we did 17 trainings for those providers based on what they told us they wanted. Um, and so it was really responsive. It was like, we would love to hear from this subject matter expert or this author. And so we would bring those individuals in. And then we also do continuing education credits. And for therapists, especially private practice, those sometimes are gold. Uh, so we actually underwrite those with grants um, and allow them to earn their continued education credits through us. So we do try to give back. And then we have opportunities for contracts of, um, of teaching and training uh, when we have individuals and corporations come to us looking for psychoeducation training for their organization. So multiple opportunities for our providers. We do try to pour a lot back into them. Um, our other is um, corporate partners, which is always an amazing um, lockstep. So individuals who have a mission that they're interested in mental health, they may have a particular population that they're interested in, or just the way in which that we're offering and operating um, mental health services. Um, and so that often is like a side by side. Sometimes they run fundraisers internally and do a company match. Sometimes they're on our boards and advisories um, helping us like make sure that we're taking into account uh, what's happening kind of out in the world and making sure that we're being reflective of that, whether it's workplace wellness and mental health or um, individuals, uh, businesses who've had employees who've been affected by human made, um, uh, human -made trauma. And, um, but I will say the, the companies that have walked alongside of us and, you know, I, I can name a, a number of them that are, you know, national companies and then also local kind of more 
you know, mom and pop who really want to be part of a solution. And, um, you know, we fortunately keep a very low overhead. And so our money, generally, all of it is going out the door back out for services. And so I'm really proud of the way in which we operate there as well. And then uh, we do have wellness ambassadors. And this is just a way for anybody to get involved and really elevate your, uh, your mental health EQ. And so you'd become uh, an ambassador and we have some ideas for really mobilizing those, but they would be great for corporations who want to have more individuals on staff because who's the first person you usually go to at work? It's usually not your supervisor, it's a colleague. And so the more that we know what to do, what to say, how to say it, when somebody actually needs help that is outside of your help, your ability to help. Um, but it's giving resources and um, psychoeducation, just being able to say that anybody and everybody has a role to play in supporting each other in mental health. Um, and then we do have ambassadors, and I know I introduced you to one of our ambassadors, but we have an actress, we have a, um, a now retired um, uh, boxer, we have Eric Christensen. Um, you know, we have individuals who have a passion and a platform who are just talking about their experience and what they know in the day to day. And really, again, it's all it's a lot about destigmatizing mental health. And when you have people who you know and trust and some even if it's on Instagram, but it's somebody that you're following, it has a lot of power. It has a lot of influence to say it's OK. It's OK. And this is you can reach out and get help. And you mentioned uh, Eric Christensen as a ambassador, obviously. And, you know, uh, he's very unique in the movies that he's done and obviously in Unmasking Hope because his level of empathy and ability to connect with people is so powerful. And you can see that, you know, he really builds that rapport and understands their story in, in a level that I think everybody can model. Um, so is there like for you uh, training on that as well for people? You know, obviously somebody wants to be an ambassador for, for a given hour. Yeah. You, you want to give them the skill sets and the mindset to understand how they can play an effective role by understanding mental health, understand how to communicate with people, all those things. So what kind of training do you provide okay. to somebody who wants to get involved and do something like that? Yeah, so we do. Uh, we have actually a person on staff who is dedicated to our ambassadors and um, her work is so much about some of that. It's, it's really training. It's talking about like understanding how given our, you know, kind of the what and why um, and how um, that we operate, but also connecting to their story and what it is that's driving them. So many individuals have had, a, and I would say all now that I'm thinking about it, have had a personal experience, either they have experienced themselves or a family member that really called them into, into this level of service. And then we often will take up a passion project and help walk alongside to bring that to fruition. So right now we're working with um, Stephanie Showstack, who's an actress um, on A Million Little Things. She's got lots of other things that she does, but we've been working with her on a passion project called Selfish, and it's a workbook and it's an app. And we're, I mean, we've got the cover, we've got all the write-ups, like everything's in production. And Nikki's just working alongside her just to keep all the steps moving forward and, and kind of running interference when we get hung up. But it'll be such a great gift because not only will it be her being able to get something that's worked for her in her acting career and in her personal life, but now we will have ability to use it and to make it accessible to um, customers and clients who come to us to see if it's something that they can use. And again, just building it into the things that we do. And so I'm just, I'm so, again, this goes back to saying yes to people, right? Is like, why wouldn't you say yes to this? I don't know what it's going to look like. I didn't know, you know, all the ins and outs of it, but I know that Stephanie was passionate about it and we should get behind that because she's the one who will drive that passion into it. And then we had it vetted and we had, uh, you know, um, therapist on our board and elsewhere, you know, go through and, and do the fine tuning, but you can't, you can't replace passion and you can't replace people who've had a lived experience. And she has a very personal one to this. And so it, those are the things that we get to do with the ambassadors. Um, and then we continue to, to provide them training and support and, and help them just see places where they can show up that would make a big difference. Well, I think you're right about saying yes to things. I think people sometimes underestimate how uh, 
how great that is when you do say yes and you uh, say yes to an opportunity, even if you don't know where it's going to lead you. I, I know that for myself, it's been, you know, just like me going to that screen and led me to meet you. You introduced me to somebody that I will have a chance to at some point bring on the show. And every time you say yes, at least I find my world just expands oh. and it, it gives me more opportunities to give back and share and, and, and to help. So it's like, it's just the right way to live. If you can find a way to always say yes. I mean, obviously there's a point where you, maybe you can't, but in general, I think most of us can say yes most of the time. And, okay. and it's a good thing when we do. I agree. I agree. Your life just gets bigger and better when you do. So I agree. And a lot of times I don't think too much about it, which is probably a problem, but I will say <laughs> at the end of it, it always works out. Most, yeah, I, I, I would agree. Yes pretty fast. I'm like, yeah, sounds a great, great idea. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I would agree. I would agree. So in kind of trying to sum up, I mean, you've been through a whole uh, uh, a lot of stuff. Obviously, like we talked earlier, you're, you're, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're, you're, you're juggling a lot of things and, and, you know, and an athlete and you're still doing all this stuff. What's the uh, message, purpose of your life? Uh, you know, going forward. And, 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 and like you said, you don't have to know. Sometimes you just keep working it out. That's fine. What, what do you see as kind of like, a? because I think people when they have a purpose and mission, whatever it is, it can be small, it can be large, but when you have a reason to do things, your life is fuller. You're, you're able to have a more accomplished when you don't have any purpose or mission. And that's true for veterans. When they come out and lose a purpose and mission, they lose something that's special and they need to refine a purpose and mission, a new a purpose and mission. And whether in service or something like that, I think is a good thing. But what's yours and how do you, what would you suggest for the audience? Yeah, and it's so interesting because I think that it, it, at least for me, it's hit me in different seasons of my life. So I would say 10 years ago, I would have had a totally different answer to this. But I feel like right now, it's really about, well, I mean, it's always been about other people. I will say that, starting with, it's about other people, but it's using what you can now to advance the betterment of other people. And so I think before 10 years ago, I would have been in a different position where I could make some changes, but I, I couldn't affect him at all levels. And I feel like now my role is really to listen to other people tell me why they can't access care, why they um, aren't able to find a therapist, why they can't um, help somebody that's come to us. And, and break that down. And now that I feel like I'm in a, a position in a role where we could just either start doing stuff or stop doing things that don't make sense, um, it opens that up so much more. And so you really are just navigating things and, and really going after the artificial, and a lot of times it's artificial uh, barriers that prevent people from getting what they want and need. And so I feel like that's been at least in this role, um, I'm really am committed to helping our team figure out how to remove the logistical barriers between somebody seeking care and somebody getting care. And a lot of times, sometimes you're in your own way. And I, I think that we figured a lot of that out. It's like, well, we have to fill out this form. It's like, but do, they don't care about a form. Like, how do we bridge this distance faster? How do we make sure our therapists are engaged and can, can accept someone quickly? Um, how do we make sure that we can follow up on care without interfering with the care that somebody has, is getting? So there was just a lot of those kinds of pieces. Um, and now that I can say yes to a lot, I can just, it can be more like, well, what if we didn't do this? I was like, it sounds great. Stop doing it. And then that's it. You know, so it, it helps change and it helps challenge a lot of things that we think are just conventional or we think are just in place. Like it's, you can't touch it. It's just how we've done it. And I think that we're really undoing that. And we're saying we actually don't have to do it that way. And, and I think when you deeply listen to someone else, the answer's there. The an they have the answer. They're telling you what they want and need. And so your job is to fix, fix that middle piece. And so to me, the details are in that, that gap, in that gray area where everything gets stuck. And really at this role, that has been my purpose is to, to break those down. So our, our team can do what they need to do to make sure that people are taken care of. Well, I, I, I love that because, uh, you know, even when I worked in, in as a counselor in mental oh. health and in that field as well, but in other fields, 
you know, the, the thing that always bothered me was bureaucracy and red tape and all the stuff that you had to do, but you really didn't have to do and just got in the way of the bottom line, which is being of service and, and getting the solution and getting people helped, which, you know, even if it means going outside the box and finding creative ways to solve it, you do. And so you're in a position now as a CEO to be able to uh, impact that as a leader of the organization. But I, I just think that's such a great thing that you have that purpose and mission because, you know, I, I, that's how you get more people served and helped. Um, so I, I commend you for, for having that point of view and that uh, approach to things like let's make it simple. Let's get them to service. Let's let's find a way. And uh, yeah, that's a great attitude to have 100 percent. Yeah. And so, I think it changes your life as the staff member, too. I mean, it's really it's an empowerment across the board, but to have to feel like you have more say and equitable say in your work, I think is an incredibly powerful. And it's probably one of those, you know, kind of toxicities that I've dealt with over the years that I really am desperately to undo. And so but it builds it takes a lot of time and trust. And and I felt really proud of our team because they have leaned into some really difficult, you know, conversations and vulnerabilities. And, you know, I think no, none of us love to feel vulnerable. And, you know, we have to keep building that trust because at the end of the day, the better that we can work together as a unit, the more um, we can get people served and get them into what they want and need. So it is just locked in. It feels right. feels like this was made for them. And people can start their healing journey and then hopefully share that with others. So uh, we have more and more people who can help one another. It's a huge capacity builder. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to put up on the screen. Uh, obviously, people can go to givenhour.org to uh, contact and to volunteer on whatever level that they're able to volunteer on. They can donate to givenhour.org uh, at givenhour. And this is uh, uh, one of the places where you can get the information, right? Yeah. This is Director of Communications and her contact uh, number and email. So you can uh, go here and then you course you can find Given Hour on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. So you got many ways to stay in communication Absolutely. with Given Hour and be able to participate. Um, anything else you would like to close with? It's been great. It's great. You're my first uh, doctor. Uh, on the show, but uh, so Dr. Trina, it's been a pleasure and an honor to, I'm, I'm just so glad that I, I said yes that night and ended up with that screen and, and uh, got a chance to hang with you you and um, and also hang with uh, Jeff, which, you know, was, is always an experience. Um, so was, that was great. I know we should have totally grabbed you for that, for the afterward too. I don't know what I was thinking, but as it was, if things were going, there's so many things happening. Um, but yes, I need to make it back to uh, SoCal in, in somehow. And and I'll give you, this is what Jeff said earlier, which is kind of what was going on that night. Um, this what he said. So that's what I have to put up with him. But uh, <laughs> um, but very true, Jeff. Very true, man. Um, right. Anything else you would like to close on? And once again, thank you so much. Thank you for all the work that you're doing with this. And I, I recommend that people check out Give an Hour. Go to the page. Uh, givenhour.org, uh, take a look at what they're doing and find a way, you know, if you can just give a little time, give it if you're, you know, whatever uh, capacity you are, be an ambassador, uh, help help spread this. It's a great cause. And I think it's changing people's lives. I appreciate that. And thank you. Just thank you for giving us a chance to highlight that. And and again, it was so great to see you at Eric's premiere. So I appreciate you. And, and, uh, indeed. Well, thank you so much. You have a fantastic day. I'm going to close out the show and, uh, uh, look forward to seeing you in, in L.A. in the future. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye. So, I, you know, I'd love, I hope you enjoyed the show. Everybody's been watching the show and, and Dr. Trina's message today of service and hope and volunteerism and making a difference in, in the field of mental health for both um, veterans and military people and other people who've experienced trauma. So you can support them. Uh, you can go to giveanhour.org uh, and support them, donate or volunteer your time. So I hope you take the time. And the message I think was very empowering. You know, it was for me. Um, join us every Sunday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And next, next week, I have a guest and a friend, Elvis Leone, who's an Army veteran, a filmmaker and a documentarian. And he has a powerful story and a work in progress documentary entitled uh, Somos Leones, We Are Lions. 
that is about uh, a kidnapping of a family member. And it's a very powerful story. So you're just going to have to see the trailer next week. So I hope you uh, join us. Keep on coming back every Sunday and meet the great friends that I've been blessed with. And I encourage you to choose to live courageously, make your life a masterpiece. And God bless you until next Sunday.